Good morning, sinners. If that's a little uncomfortable, well, you know we're supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So if that's a little much, then good morning, sinners. (laughs) I was born right at the end of World War II in the pre-television era, if such there ever was. And one day, my dad went over, and considering his level of income, what he bought was exorbitant. It was a very pricey television system. It had the tower with the rotor on it. And, oh, for me, guess when they showed up to install it? Sabbath afternoon. And guess what was playing when the guys got it all up and running? Uh, shoot 'em up western, where the good guys were wearing what? The white hats, and the bad guys were wearing the black hats. That actually was the way you could tell who was who on those. Well, my mother was quite uncomfortable, but she let it stay on until after the program. Then she shut it off and said, "No more until sundown." I could hardly wait till sundown. Well, you know, the problem with that thing, it was a tube job, not one of those solid-state things that we live with now everywhere you go. By the way, if you think everybody's familiar with those, go into a home and look how many blinking lights there are. We're not very friendly with electronics all too frequently. Well, anyhow, this the picture would start jiggling and doing funny, crazy things. And pretty soon we couldn't make any sense. He'd call his cousin who'd come over, change a few tubes, and then sock him 20 bucks for the service trip. Well, after about a dozen of those, one day the picture tube went out. And he got, my father got so irritated with it, he uh, sold it to the neighbors for $35. And that was a console, great sound and everything else. And I was heartbroken about that. I'd go into that house once in a while. I'd look at their, our TV sitting in their house. I just felt it wasn't very fair. Well, my dad was the youngest in his family. And his brother was the oldest. And one of his brothers, my uncle, one of his sons, old enough to be my dad, stopped by the house one day. And before he left, he's looking around. He says, where's your TV? You don't have a TV? Well, I've got four. I'll bring you one of mine. Oh, I thought I died and going to heaven. I thought, wonderful, I can hardly wait. Oh, oh. Every time I heard somebody set foot on the porch, Here's Cousin Fred with our TV. No, it wasn't. Months went by before I quit looking and hoping. And it was years before I realized Fred never really did intend to bring that TV. He was just sounding big and important. And he never did. Not too long ago, Fred died with sunset Alzheimer's, which is a horrible Horrible affliction experience. But you know, 
By the way, this is not the message that was listed in your bulletin. This one is the problem with promises. And you know what the problem with promises is? It's not the promises. It's the promiser. Did I say that right? Promisor? Promiser? The one making the promises. Will they do what they said? Or will they be like my cousin Fred? It broke my heart when I realized it's not going to happen. He's got four and we don't even have one. Where is he? Well, people, have you ever done that, made a promise you never kept? It's easy to do, isn't it? Easy, easy, easy. Well, you know, when you go to the Bible... Do anybody remember an elder Glenn Kuhn? He used to go around doing the ABCs of prayer. Ask, what was the B? Believe, and C was claim or give thanks that you've received it. And he always quoted the text that said, God dwells in the praises of Israel. In other words, folks, we are closer to the Lord when we're saying, Thank you than at any other time in life. We ought to do more of it, don't you think? Well, he said in the Bible, well, here's how I remember from him saying how many promises are in the Bible. Heinz 57, right? 57 varieties. He said split 33, 3,573 promises. You got a problem you got a need, what do you do? Find a promise to match and ask, believe, and claim. Thank the Lord it's yours. Well, some of those promises that God made, you look at them and you think, man, that's off the wall. For instance, David and the army are at war. And the Lord says, David, I'm going to give you the victory. Here's what you do. You stay in that thicket of trees. Don't bat an eyelash and don't make a sound. And when you see the tops of this tree start reveling with a, with a breeze, jump and run, and you've got it. David did it, and what happened? Done. Wonderful victory. Wonderful victory. Uh, Gideon, you've got too many. You only need 300. You win with 300. I'll give you the victory. Are you sure, Lord? What did Gideon have to do to make sure? The Lord said, sneak down into the camp and listen to the first tent you come up to and see what you hear. So Gideon did that, and this fella, it's, you know, right after they've gone to sleep, and this guy, oh, oh, horrible, horrible, horrible. And his buddy said, will you be quiet? What's terrible? And his buddy in the tent says, I just had this horrible dream that a loaf of bread tumbled in a camp and knocked everything flat. He said, oh, we're in trouble. What do you mean we're in trouble? That's Gideon. We're done for. Gideon hears that. And what do you think his face looked like? (laughs) Oh, boy. What an off-the-wall promise. But did God do what he said? Yes, he did. I mean, so he said, Gideon, here's what you should do. Get everybody four things. A trumpet, a torch, 
a pitcher and a good voice. And then in the dead of night, the 300 of you surround that valley, that little valley where all those Midianites are, and on signal, everybody smash the pitcher, hold up the torch, blow the trumpet, and cry, a sword for the Lord and Gideon, and watch what I do. What happened? You remember the story? Now, what the Bible doesn't tell us, folks, is in those days, who carried the torch? The commanding officer of a thousand troops. And if those fellows, the Midianites down there, had counted, how many soldiers do you think they would have thought they were up against? 300,000. Well, they weren't. It was only 300 men, but they didn't know that under cover of darkness. Panicking, they wiped each other out. And all these fellows up in the hills, God's soldiers had to do is stand there with those torches. God said, I'll do it for you. Did he do it? One of the most off-the-wall things that I've ever read in the Bible is where the king said, believe his prophets and you'll prosper. Is that still true? Well, you bet it's still true. So, the next day, the Lord said, you're not going to have to fight this battle. I'll do it for you. So he went out. And you know who the king sent out there first? Brother Paul, the choir. He sent the choir out there, and they started singing praise to the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And what happened out there? They turned on each other and attacked. Wow. You know, the promises of God to his people are incredible. The problem is believing the God who makes the promises. How are you in terms of trust? Now, sometimes there are conditions attached. Take your Bible and find Jeremiah 18. This is significant, and I want you to notice this because apparently evangelicalism has missed this chapter. All right? Jeremiah 18, I'm using the new RSV version this morning, one of many. By the way, when you're studying, I think it'd probably be great if you used a lot of different versions while you were studying. You'd see things you wouldn't any other way. All right. Now, this is called the principle of conditionalism. All right. Jeremiah 18, verse 7, at one moment... I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. By the way, would that be a threat or would that be a promise? Well, it depends on whose side of the Lord you're on, right? When I say I'm going to pluck it up and break and destroy it, verse 8, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. What is the classic for this? Nineveh. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be toast. Did it happen? What did the people do? The king ordered everybody to put on sackcloth and ashes and repent 
and grieved for their succeeding sinful wickedness. And the fire never fell, but it did ignite poor Jonah. He was pretty fired up about the fact that they didn't burn. Really ugly with the Lord. I don't know why the Lord kept him other than he he knew he could use him. Well, then there's another one here. Keep going. Now, verse 9. At another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I intended to do to it. What is the classic with this one? Israel. I heard it. Israel. But evangelicalism doesn't recognize the fact that as a nation, Israel has never repented. They've never confessed their sins. They proceeded in their arrogance. We are the people of the Lord. And everybody here wants to go over and help them rebuild the temple and start blood sacrifices again. Does that make sense to you? For two reasons. Number one, they would have to knock what down? The Dome of the Rock Mosque. What would that do? If you think those people over there get fired up over a dumb cartoonist in cartoons, you haven't seen anything that would start World War III. But why would any Christian want a whole nation of people to do blood sacrifices when they have the great sacrifice, Jesus? It doesn't make sense at all to me. But they don't recognize this principle of conditionalism. Sometimes when you find a promise, you got to check for conditions, all right? Now, continuing on, I mentioned a minute ago the problem with God's promises is he's making the promise, and we may have problems believing him. You know why that is so? Well, let's do a little history lesson this morning. Going back... Once up there, everything was peaceful and heavenly, right? You know what I mean by that? Everybody got along with everybody. Everybody trusted everybody. And God trusted everyone. But if they had done a brain scan of Lucifer, what would they have seen on the picture? A dark spot called the cancer of sin, right? They would have seen that. Lucifer has gotten a fat head. I should be preferred ahead of the sun. And he just unilaterally started grabbing onto stuff that was rightfully only the property of the Son of God. And he started acting like he was God. And that's what it says. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. I will be like the Most High. And he started, God called everybody together, all the heavenly beings, the angels. I don't know how many there are, but there must be a bunch. How many have you worn out, by the way? Some people can wear out three or four before they finally get it back to the Lord, but I suppose the angels are happy to do it because they love us. Wait till you meet your angel face to face. You think you recognize him? I can just see us looking at him and say, you, 
He just smiled. Yeah, you never knew. But I was there all the time looking after you. I think we'll recognize our angels. But anyway, Lucifer, God calls them together. And as it says in Hebrew 1, he commanded, everybody let all my angels worship my son who is seated on the throne with me. He is every bit as much God as I am. You are to worship and serve and love and obey him even as you do me. And all the angels, of course, loved him. But you know who else they loved? Lucifer, but he was no longer their commander. Now it was clear it was the son of God was. Well, they all bowed, but as Lucifer let, left that meeting, it was now saying, he said to himself, never again. And you know, we were born with that never hardwired in our system. I'm going to do it my way. Who was it? Somebody sent me an email the other day. There's a Hollander by the name of Andre Rio. He's a violinist, plays beautiful music. Well, he's got one where he, and he usually doesn't do this, I understand, but he played the whole piece through in honor of Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Without the words, it's beautiful. With the words, it's not so sweet. But anyhow, that's what he 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 does. Gorgeous music, but that's what the what Satan says. Never do it my way. And how in Revelation twelve? Go there for just a minute now. Revelation twelve. Surely you're familiar with this one. And. And the first part of it, it talks about a struggle going on between the dragon and the woman and her seed. And it says, verse 4, his tail, the dragon. Who's the dragon? The devil. His tail did what? Swept one-third of the stars of heaven, all of God's angels. One-third of them turned on God and walked away from him. Now, my question is this. How did he do that? Satan, I mean, how did he do that? Whatever the stuff was he was telling them, we hear some of it in our world. For instance, what does God do to wicked people? Disobey me? Sin? I'll get you for that. You're going to burn. How long? Forever. Your soul is immortal. You cannot die. You're going to roast and roast and toast and toast forever. Challenge me, will you? Where did that idea come from? The idea that the burning never quits? It's very common in evangelicalism today. People think that. But what does the Bible say? The last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, it says the righteous will walk on what? The ashes of the wicked. Ashes, where's the fire? Gone. It's over. It's out. Where did the idea of immortal soul come from anyway? 
That's one of the lies. Because if God really does that to wicked people, do you want to love and serve a God like that? No. So you read the promises. They don't come across like that. To Luther, the righteousness of God was his avenging, judging wrath on sin. And he'd read about it, and he just shuddered in horror at the God that he was supposed to love, and he couldn't bring himself to love God until one day they suddenly got together, and he understood it, and he said, Oh, God, I've been so wrong about you. Maybe you and I are coming to the point where we look up and say the same thing. God, we haven't been very kind to you. We haven't been very fair. I mean, you study scripture and you begin to realize, wait, wait, wait just a minute. God is kinder. God is more reasonable. He's more thoughtful, considerate, patient, forgiving, loving. He's love itself. How can we not love him? How can we not serve him? And so this is the challenge that God has that we have too. How can we get past all these lies of the enemy to the truth about God? Now, I hope you left it open to Revelation 12 because we're going to go back there shortly here. Uh, how do we overcome that? Some people ask once in a while, how come God didn't put Satan out of commission the minute it happened? And the answer is, if he had, would the truth have been seen? I don't think so. You know, yes, but the angels, you know, they just wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have been sure. God had to step back and let him go because he knew the truth would be seen. And where it was seen was at Calvary when Jesus died. And the heavenly universe watched. And when Jesus had died, they stepped back and they said, we know where the truth is, and it's not with Satan. It is with God. And they could turn to him and love him with unquestioned faithfulness. He could do anything and everything, and they would not question him. Almost like Job, though he slay me, what? I will still trust him. Do you feel that way about God? That's where Jesus was. You know, Master, we're sinking, we're going to drown. You know, mm-hmm. Where's your faith? As he woke up, where's your faith, fellas? He had that kind of faith. Job had that kind of faith. And the Lord would love to have us have that kind of faith because if we could trust him and really love him, what do you think he could do through us? Use us to reach others who really need to know and they don't where the truth really is. Well, anyhow, Revelation 12, it happened, and it says, verse 11, how did the saints overcome the enemy, the wicked one? By the blood of the Lamb. That is how it happens. You study what happened at Calvary. Jesus dying on the cross, and you will see where the truth is. And you'll turn from Satan in horror, in horror 
you'll turn from sin in revulsion and you'll turn back to the Lord and say, God, give me you. You can have everything else. I don't want anything except you. You are the truth. Amen? That's how they overcame. Now, Hebrews 11.1, 1, King James says, Faith is the what? Substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What is that talking about? You know, Shakespeare wrote beautifully. The King James is translated beautifully. But a lot of the vocabulary and expressions we don't use anymore. And so you wonder, what exactly is that about? What this is saying simply is that through history, and this that we have here is recorded the evidence that we can base our judgment on. You read the stories, particularly at Calvary. You read that story, and you know where the truth is, and you say, you know what? God, I can believe you. I can trust you. The truth is with you. And that's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Now, in Habakkuk 2, which is picked up in Romans, it says, he who is righteous by faith, what? Will live. We live this way. You know, if you really trust God, here's where you've got to get to know him and sell it all. Now, do you remember a fellow named Harry Chapin? Well, he wrote a book, I mean, a book, my mind's on the Bible. <laughs> he wrote, he's a musician, a number of songs, one of which, a few times I've read this, it makes me cry. It's called The Cats in the Cradle. And I want to read it, the lyrics to you. My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. And he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know, I'm going to be like you. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know, we'll have a good time then. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. He said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know, I'm going to be like him. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, a little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. Well... He came home from college just the other day, so much like a man I had to say, Son, I'm proud of you. Can you sit for a while? He shook his head and said with a smile, What I really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. You know we'll have a good time then. 
I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. You see, the new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu, but it's sure been nice talking to you, Dad. It's sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. The cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, son? Don't know when, but we'll get together then, Dad. You know, we'll have a good time then. A father making promise after promise he never keeps. We don't have a father like that. Our father keeps his promises. And you know how? Back to Calvary. The family had a multi-level home, and the top floor was an attic. And it was kind of spooky and scary up there, particularly after dark. And Dad used that as a means of inciting better behavior on the part of his children. But one of his boys just, he couldn't seem to get it reined in. (laughs) And one evening, it was really bad, Dad said, Son, any more, and it's the attic for you tonight. And, dad, and and son Junior couldn't end, so dad said, to the attic. And all of a sudden, it's too late to try to convince dad. And so he grabbed his comforter, which wasn't much comfort. And up the stairs he goes, he shuts the door, and it's dark up there. And he lays down on the mattress. And, and then he hears the door open and somebody coming up the stairs. Who, who, who is it? And dad says, son, move over and give me a little room on that thing you're lying on because it's going to force pretty hard up here. And that little guy wrapped himself around his dad so tight you couldn't have peeled him off. And dad spent all night with Junior in the dark attic. Our father in heaven has gone through the dark night of sin with us in the attic of the universe. And he hasn't forsaken us because he loves us. Every word he said, every promise he's ever made, he'll keep because you and I are precious in his sight. Amen. As the words come to your mind, you may say them out loud with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. O Lord, how good you are. We praise you for your wonderfulness to us and the character that you have and are. How wonderful you are. We love you. Amen.